This is Jocko Podcast number six with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Time to get back to the books. Last time I read some letters and today we're going back to the books and actually this one is kind of hard pressed or it's a stretch to call this a book. Today we're, we're you know, I've, I've given some pretty, um, you know, the last hundred yards is a very rare piece of piece of literature, if you could even call it that. Yeah. Uh, same with battle leadership. That's that's pretty rare. Now that one can be found found on the internet. About Face was a pretty popular book, uh, but this one tonight we're going with something that many people have heard of, or at a minimum, you've heard of Napoleon. Right, military leader. Yeah. But what's interesting about this and what's almost makes it cheating from my perspective, for me, is that these are maxims. These are already parsed down and put into a format that's very easy to understand. You know, he the work has already been done. Mm -hmm. Uh and and I'll tell you, it is hard for me to find books or pieces of information to do this with. And part of the reason is it takes a, it takes, I'm looking for something very specific, Mm. right? And it's not, you know, there's so, there's a lot of, there's tons of great books about war and they are about war. They're about what happened and how the war happened and how, what, what tactics were used and what unit moved where and how many people they killed and how many maneuvers they did and so that's very interesting and there's definitely lessons to be learned from that and there there is knowledge and that there's knowledge inside of tactics it, you know the most common one is like if you talk about the flank which is the most common tactic mm-hmm. is you know if 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 you're assaulting a target you go straight on and that's that's a, a frontal assault. But then what you want to do is you want to swing around the outside and hit them from where they're not protecting themselves. So that's a tactic that can be applied to, you know, anything. It can be applied to a debate. Mm-hmm. It can be applied to jujitsu. It can be applied to business situations where, you know, you want to hit your competition where they aren't expecting it. So that's a flank. So, you, so there is knowledge to be gained from tactics for sure. Mm-hmm. But what I am always more interested in is the leadership and the the human psychology, you know, and that's why I love battle battle leadership because that first chapter is, is battlefield psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is pre, you know, this is World War One. You know, there was no kind of foo foo new age. Hey, feelings and what are people? No, all that stuff didn't exist. And here's this guy talking about battlefield psychology, and but but that's what I'm always interested in. That's what I want to explore. That's what I want to learn about. That's what I want to compare my experiences to because, and and I've said this before, leadership is the most challenging of all endeavors and, and leading these human beings with all these variables is the most challenging and therefore the most rewarding. So while the tactics are important and you, and you, can gain from them. It's, it's how the people react, what they do, where they go. Those are the things that, that stand the test of time. And that's always what I'm looking for. Um, 
So these kind of things are that are the things that allow you as a leader of other people to look at those examples and learn from them and gain from them. And there will be little changes and, and little adjustments and you can see that there's changes over time, but the basic principles, no matter when you, you can always learn from them, you know, and, and it's the same thing with the tactics. Like for instance, there was, you know, when we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan and I did not fight in Afghanistan, but one of my good buddies that fought with me in Iraq and you know, we brought back a lot of tactics and learned a lot of lessons. And, and he said, after we went to Afghanistan, he said, that's oh, the same thing. And people would say, you know, it's not, it's totally, it's a totally different war. And he, so he fought in both and he says, yeah, um, in Iraq where we were in Ramadi, he goes in Ramadi and in Iraq, it's streets, um, and buildings. And, you know, you get the elevated positions on the buildings and then you've got control over the streets and, he goes in, in Afghanistan, it's valleys and hills and, you know, you get the elevated position on the hills and, and, and it's pretty much this, you know, the same thing. Are there differences? Absolutely. Yeah. The, you know, but I'm saying the basic principles that he learned, he was able to apply. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, not that I don't always keep an open mind that things can change and thing, unexpected things will happen, but that's sort of where you know, what I'm always looking for. So that's why there's a lot of war books that I love to read and read, but I don't take away the same types of lessons that I want to talk to people about or that I think people want to talk to about. It'd be a different program. It would be a different program. And maybe we should do a, a program that's, that's aimed at, you know, military people. Um, that are, that are concerned about tactics. Cause that is definitely something that I, that I kind of worship tactics. You know, I love tactics. I love talking about tactics. Um, but, but for the, for normal people and, and for military leaders learning about how people react mm -hmm. is to me kind of what's important mm -hmm. and what I like to explore. Right. Right. So, Interesting. I got a couple things about Napoleon. Everyone, everyone knows, you know, something about Napoleon. A couple cool facts about him, and this is going into this book here, which, which the book is actually called Roots of Strategy, and it's got a bunch of different, bunch of different sections to it, and it's different leaders, different historical leaders throughout time. And it, this section on Napoleon, Napoleon going into the book here, Napoleon fought more battles than Alexander, Hannibal and Caesar combined. He is beyond any doubt, the greatest of European soldiers. So pretty good lead in. We were talking about a guy with some knowledge. He astounded his opponents by the crushing rapidity of his battles he marched against the enemy, and his plan of battle was a part of his plan of march. So he's a guy that used mobility and used the quickness and the pace to dictate how the battles were going to go. His tactical system or scheme of battle was based on a holding attack against the enemy's front to keep them occupied, a wide envelopment or turning movement on the enemy's rear with a small force to spread dismay and confusion in the defender's ranks, and then the decisive blow. 
So that's what we just talked about. He was sort of a master of the flank. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm going to do a good assault. You're going to be paying attention to that. And then from the side or the rear or somewhere that you're not expecting, you're getting submitted. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. Napoleon was the first great strategist of the Western world. His battles were the result of his strategical movements and were carefully calculated. Very, I would say that anyone that associate anyone that thinks of Napoleon thinks of him as a strategist and a great strategist. Now, this collection of his maxims was published in Paris in 1827 and almost immediately was translated into German, English, Spanish, and Italian. Stonewall Jackson carried these maxims in his haversack throughout his campaign. This little volume, states Colonel Henderson, who is Jackson's biography, contains a fairly complete exposition in Napoleon's own, uh, Napoleon's own words of the grand principles of war. And then the person that actually compiled the maxims, and this is actually, this is a statement that is very similar to what I started off talking about, you know, what I like to learn about. The art of war is susceptible of being considered under two titles. The one which rests entirely on the knowledge and genius of the commander. The other on matters of detail. Now, they're going to break that down a little bit further. The first is the same for all time, for all peoples, whatever arms with which they fight. From this, it follows that the same principles have directed the great captains of all centuries. So that's what I like to read about. Those, those same principles that have directed the great captains of all centuries. Those basic principles, and a lot of those have to do with human nature. And then, and then it goes on to say that the matters of detail, and what he's talking about matters of details, he's talking about tactics. On the contrary, are subject to the influence of time, to the spirit of the people, and the character of armor. And so, you know, that's when you change from having bow and arrows to rifles to machine guns to bombs to whatever. And so there, there are drastic changes in those tactics. And that's why, while they interest me, and I always like to find a common thread in tactics and say, oh, that's the same thing that we do, you know, that they did in World War One. We do that now or whatever. You know, you, I'm always looking to find that thread, but it sometimes it can be hard to th- find and sometimes it doesn't exist to any great degree. Whereas the way people act and the way human beings respond to combat situations, it, it doesn't change yeah. as much. Yeah, you would think if you go deep enough or fundamental enough that it's not surprising that it won't change because you're dealing with people and their needs and like almost on a biological level, like psychologically, a lot of times biologically, you know, preservation of life plays a big part. So yeah, technology can advance, even social stuff can advance, but that those fundamental needs typically stay the same. And and you're right. But if you think about this and we talked about this last time, like with the world war one, you know, these basic needs for survival these men just just threw them out the window. I mean, it, it's just absolutely crazy. 
they disregarded that drive and just went over the top into hell and into machine gun fires. Does that kind of go along the lines with something that is still here in a big way where they kind of put their own personal needs, whether they, you know, their, their, their need to survive personally, they put the need for their mission or their honor to survive they put that in front of their need to survive personally, and, and that's kind, doesn't that kind of translate even now? That's how like yes. soldiers are. Yes, I, I mean, I guess if we say that that's a that that's a normal human trait, which I don't know if it is or not, that I think it's something that gets learned. I don't think right. it's a inherent normal normal trait, unless you say, look, people have an inherent trait to make their tribe their right. family survive yeah. then maybe that's it yeah that's what i was gonna say that's exactly what i was gonna say so military culture especially when you when you deal with the elite where doing a good job to put it lightly doing a good job is very important you would think that that culture cultivates that need to put the mission in front of my own personal stuff so and so deep into that that individual that it does most of the time trump their need yeah. to personally Yeah. You know what? Survive. You're right and that thread actually we can go through all all of history and find a thread of of groups of people that sacrificed and put their the mission or the the group ahead of themselves. Right. Yes. Yes. I mean look at Thermopylae with the the 300 Spartans. I mean that's a classic example. Yeah. They and even, stood and even fought and died for their country. Yeah. And even people who aren't in the military, we understand that that's how elite soldiers are. Mm -hmm. You know, we understand that, oh, yeah, they, they, that's an elite soldier, one who will put his life on the line for the mission, for the country. We all understand that. And you use the term elite, but I will not use the term elite because I've seen every soldier who wouldn't be considered elite. I've seen them all. Right. do that yeah. marines do that and u.s army soldiers and and you know the 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 untrained reservist that right. doesn't really hasn't been through the kind of training that we have at all but they yeah. will have that so it has nothing to do really with which actually proves your point even more mm-hmm. is that it doesn't even have to do with your level of training or your so-called being elite right, it right. has to do with your dedication to the mission and the people that are with you so yeah but yeah, I guess a better than better than a better word than elite would be, I guess just like a dedicated soldier, or just right, a soldier right. in general. Yes. So back to the book here. A plan. Okay, now this is now we're getting into the maxims, and I'm not I obviously I didn't do all of them, but I picked out the ones that I kind of thought have the most uh, talk about human nature, but at the same time also talk about from a leadership perspective planning execution if they are important and they are universal then i i I put them in here and this is kind of one of them that i just talked about with planning a plan of campaign should anticipate everything which the enemy can do and contain within itself the means of thwarting him plans of campaign may be infinitely modified according to the circumstances this is exactly what we heard on battle leadership from von schell is that so he just said you know the plan should anticipate everything but then he goes on to say plans of campaign may be infinitely modified according to the circumstances the genius of the commander the quality of the troops and the topography of the theater of war 
So this is, again, a common thread that we hear all the time, and that is you've got to have adaptability. Mm-hmm. You've got to be. And one of the biggest hindrances to adaptability is ego, mm-hmm. is when you say, oh, you know what? My plan is awesome. My plan is, my plan is the best, and I'm just going to ride my plan into the ground mm-hmm. and take everyone down with me because I don't have the humility to admit that my plan went wrong, mm-hmm. to admit that the enemy did something I didn't expect, to, to admit that I have shortfalls with my troops or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. and say, you know what? I need to adapt. I'm going to do it now. Next one. All wars should be systematic for every war should have an aim and be conducted in conformity with the principles and rules of the art. War should be undertaken with forces corresponding to the magnitude of the obstacles that are to be anticipated. Now, what caught me about that one was recently I got asked a bunch of questions about the situation in Iraq and Syria. And one of the things people want to throw out there because it's a it's a catchy buzzword or group of buzzwords and that's you know boots on the ground Mm -hmm. and you know i kept getting asked well how many boots on the ground do we need how many troops do we need to put on the ground and my answer was the same every time which is we put as many troops on the ground as it takes to win and to win decisively and without question that's how you go to war Now, this is another little maxim, which I really like. At the commencement of a campaign, the question whether to advance or not requires careful deliberation. So, before you go into war, you you carefully deliberate. And this is something that I've been talking about lately when people think that because I'm a soldier because I'm a warrior that I want to go to war and I want all my friends to go to the war, which is just a ridiculous statement. If there's anybody that understands the impact of war, it's guys that have been to war. So this careful deliberation before you commence a campaign is exactly what should be done. And then it goes on to say, but when you have once undertaken the offensive It should be maintained to the last extremity, right? That's commitment. That is commitment. Now, I will say this, even on that, and that's a beautiful thing, you should maintain to the last extremity. That's an extreme statement. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that you got to balance that and you want to maintain that. But what I just said is that, you know, if your plan isn't working, you got to put your ego in check and figure out a new plan. So... Yeah, you want to maintain it to the last extremity, but just short of the last extremity is okay. Do an ego check and make sure you've got a good plan going. Mm. A retreat, however skillful the maneuvers may be, will always produce an injurious moral effect on the army. Since by losing chances of success yourself, you throw them into the hands of the enemy. Besides, retreats cost far more, both in men and materiel, than the most bloody engagements with this difference that in battle the enemy loses nearly much as you while in a retreat the loss is all on your side 
again, a common thread that we talk about with Von Schell, with Hackworth, and that is being on the offensive is good. Mm-hmm. Being on the offensive is always better than being on the defensive. This is a another... I hope I don't end up saying this for every one of these maxims. <laughs> but these are, you know, and it's not surprising that you do say this before each one of these maxims. You go, wow, this is an impactful one. This is important. I've heard this before. This is another way of reinstate or restating the same topic that we say all the time. A general should say to himself many times a day, if the hostile army were to make his make its appearance in front on my right or on my left, what should I do? And if he is embarrassed, his arrangements are bad, there is something wrong, he must rectify his mistake. So this is the humility of constantly asking yourself, okay, if I got hit from the flank right now, what would I do? How would I handle it? Am I ready for that? If I'm not ready for it, how do I make that change? So constantly assessing yourself, seeing where you're at, seeing how you're doing. That's a common thread, not just for war, but for being a man and being a human, being a woman, being a, being a person that's trying to be successful. Mm. Are you looking at, looking around and, and you know, things are, I'm, I'm always most nervous when things are going well, when things are going well, I'm always thinking, okay, when when is the bad thing going to come and hit me? Right. You know, how do I prepare for that? How do I watch out for it? How do I flank that thing before yeah. it happens to yeah. me? Yeah, a lot of times people will get in, they'll in a way revel in the success, right? Mm. And, and they'll get used to it. It'll be good to them. They'll get used to it. And then, yeah, when something does go bad or, or just different, even a lot Blind-sided. of times. Blindsided. Yeah, they're just so into that success and immersing themselves in, in that success then. Uh, yeah, they don't know what to do. I was, uh, we, my first deployment to Iraq, we were doing assaults and capturing bad guys. And we got a guy and then we went and got another guy right, right on, right on top of them. We interrogated that guy. We went and got, we broke down some cell and my commanding officer at the time, he came to me and he said, Hey Jocko, those, you know, I think it was four missions in a row within 24 hour period. And he said, hey, those operations, that was awesome, awesome work. You know, tell your platoon they did a great job getting the information, going back out there, a quick planning cycle. It was just fantastic. You know, those are very admirable. And I just looked at him. I said, give us 24 hours and we'll screw it up. And I just, you know, want to set expectations. That's how, that's how. That's to avoid what you were talking about, mm-hmm. to avoid being like, that's right. You know, I said, no, hey, you know what, sir, give us 24 hours and, and we'll screw it up. Right. Do you ever fear like in the, or in that particular case that um, he could look at, at it as, dang, are you being negative or because no. obviously you're not given what you're saying. You're not being negative. You're checking yourself yep. the whole time. And but do you fear that that? Either, him, either your commanding officer or anyone would take that as, dang, this guy's a pessimist no. or something like that? No, I had a good, great relationship with my, with all my commanding officers. You know, I always say that's my responsibility is, right. is to have a great relationship with these guys. And so he knew that I was just being humble and making sure that we weren't getting yeah. cocky, even though he was trying to fire me up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he's probably trying to do that because everyone was kind of burned out. I mean, from doing, staying awake for a long yeah. period of time and doing a bunch of ops. And he was just trying to, you know, give some compliments. And, yeah, yeah. and I just said, hey, sir, 
you know, let's not let's not get crazy here. Yeah, we yeah. got a long deployment ahead of us still. So you gotta be careful of that. To operate upon lines remote from each other and without communications between them is a fault which ordinarily occasions a second. The detached column has orders only for the first day. Its operations for the second day may depend on what has happened to the main body. Thus, according to circumstances, the column wastes its time in waiting for orders or it acts randomly. So, what that means is you've got multiple elements out there and you've got the main element and whoever breaks off from that main element, they might know what to do the first day, but what do they do the second day? And this is just going into classic decentralized command because in reality today, in today's world, this rarely happens where we lose total communications. And in the business world, I mean, I'm a text away. You can literally talk to me at instantaneously. But there, there's, there's times in combat and in the business world and in life where instantaneously isn't fast enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not fast enough. And we've talked about this with decentralized command. If, if you know, you get ambushed and you don't know what you're supposed to do as a commander when you get ambushed, you don't have a plan, you don't have an overall strategy, then what are you going to do? Call back to higher headquarters and say, hey, Jocko, we're getting ambushed right now. What do you want me to do? No, I've, I've, you, you got to be out there in the field with the, with the commander's intent that you know what's, what you're supposed to do. And you know that if you get ambushed, here's what you're going to do. You're going to break contact or you're going to you know, flank the enemy or what, whatever the case may be, but you're going to know what to do. In a, in a business environment, it's the same thing. There's times where instant communication isn't fast enough. You know, I actually see this when we work with like salespeople mm-hmm. and you know, there'll be some hierarchy of, of adjusting product pricing mm. and you know, a client will come in or a customer will come in. And if that person, if that frontline salesperson doesn't have the ability to make a, a pricing decision on the spot mm-hmm. and say, you know what, sir, I, I see you, you, you know, you've, you've shopped us around and this is the deal you've got over there. I can do it here. I can take care of you. We can beat that price. If he can't do that, he's going to lose. Mm. You know, if he goes, let me check with my manager. Sure, he could hang on to him, but there's a chance he's going to lose him. Maybe. So sometimes instantaneous isn't fast enough. Mm. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be quicker. It's got to be able to happen with no communications. And right. that's that's what this is referring to. Mm-hmm. It ought it ought then to be adopted as a principle that the columns of an army should always be kept united so that when the enemy cannot thrust themselves between them. This is something that I always preached to my SEAL leadership, and that is that separating your forces, and sometimes you do have to do it, and it's and it's a completely acceptable tactic, but is always better to be unified. It's always better to be unified. It's always better to be close enough that you can, in fact, you can be separate, but you don't, you always need to be close enough to each other to support each other. Mm -hmm. So if you know, you shouldn't be getting your, you and your element shouldn't be getting any further away from me and my element, then we could be able to support you. So what's the range of my guns? What's the accurate range of my guns? You know, if I can shoot three or 400, 500 meters, you know, 
if you have eight guys and I have eight guys and now we're getting further than that apart, that means I really can't support you. Mm. So now we're alone. Mm-hmm. And that's not how you want to be. So again, there's times where people have to take calculated risks, but we always would say, you know, keep that, um, keep together, <laughs> stay together as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this is a, I'm, I'm talking tactics now. This is like for people that are in the military that are listening to this podcast. There's something to keep in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. stay where you can cover and move, stay where you can mutually support one another. Mm. They should move. To, oh, uh, when for any reason this maxim is departed from the detached core should be independent in their operations. They should move towards a fixed point at which they are u- to unite. They should march without hesitation and without new orders and should be exposed as little as possible to the danger of being attacked separately. This to me goes into contingencies where if we do get separated, you've got to know, okay, if I get separated and it's been an hour, I'm going to this fixed point and we're going to make it happen. Yeah. That's something you're at the mall. I was just going to say, when you got a family, this is something you actually have to legit come up with. Okay. If we get separated, here's where we're going to meet and here's what time. And by the way, if we don't make that muster for whatever reason, the next one will be here. And so you got to have a little contingency planning with the fam. <laughs> Make sure it's all good. What does muster mean? Uh, muster means bring everyone together and yeah, yeah. count how many people you have. I'm going to say that next time. Yeah. Say muster, muster. is at so-and-so. <laughs> next one. A well-established maxim of war is not to do anything which your enemy wishes and for the single reason that he does so wish. Okay, that is pretty self-explanatory. Don't do anything that your enemy wants you to do. You should, therefore, avoid a field of battle which he has reconnoitered and studied. You should still, you should be still more careful to avoid one which he has fortified and where he has entrenched himself. A corollary of this principle is never to attack in front a position which admits of being turned. So one of the one of the the biggest pieces that I take away from this, and this is you you should still be more careful to avoid one which he has fortified and where he has entrenched himself. I used to give my guys warnings about this, about these fixed positions that are entrenched. And I wasn't talking about combat. You know what I was talking about? I was talking about debates. <laughs> I was talking about debates because you, there's, there's guys in the SEAL teams that would lure you into some kind of a debate mm-hmm. about, let's say, the strategy that the SEAL teams were using, the strategy, uh, the way things that they, sh- the way they thought things should be done. Mm-hmm. And... The, the thing is, these guys would sit there and have this argument with amongst themselves and, and with other people. And so they would, they would have these kind of fortified positions on them. Mm-hmm. And you roll into it and you're like, you got your experience, but you're not ready for a debate on it. You're not ready for these fortified positions that you're, they're going to throw at you. Right. So don't engage in these battles. And, you know, it's like uh, I, I was doing Sam Harris's uh, podcast, you know. And I, and I went up there and there were some things that I thought, well, you know, he might ask me about some of these philosophical 
opinions on things. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, I was ready to, to have a discussion, but what I wasn't ready to do was like stand my ground on the topic of free will right, with, right. with Sam Harris, a mm-hmm. guy that's literally written an entire book, <laughs> which is called free will. And he right. has his own. So for me to engage with him, it's an entrenched position. It's something that I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to win. And I'm, I, and I'm, in fact, you know, it's not, it's not like Sam Harris is a pretty mellow guy. It's not like, well, you're not getting an argument, but I wasn't even going to make any practical points, right. you know? And yeah. so I'm just always very cautious. And again, in the business world, you get people that understand some part of their business so well you have to be very careful and you have to plan when you're going to engage with them because otherwise you're going to get just you know destroyed mm-hmm. yeah sam harris's uh position on free will is pretty fortified out yeah and it's and 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 the scary thing is is that you can actually be right mm-hmm. about something but if you're going against someone that's got a fortified position it, you can still lose the argument and look stupid. Um, right. Not that there's anything wrong with looking stupid, but you know you want to pick your battles. I mean, right? Yeah. Not that Sam Harris isn't right or anything like that. Yeah. Like you're just I, saying in general. Yeah. No. 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 I wasn't. Definitely wasn't talking specifically about about Sam Harris. That's just a great example because right. again, it's a guy that's literally written a book. Right. Called Free Will. Yeah. So if he wants to talk about it, and I want to say no, I don't agree with you. He's just ready for that, you know. Just like if we, we said, you know what, hey, let's let's train jujitsu. Right. I'm ready for that. I've been in every position that yeah. that is going to happen in jujitsu. I've been in there a thousand more times than him. Yeah. Because I've been training for a really long time. So if we have that discussion about free will, it's going to be the same thing. I'm right. just not going well, yeah, to bring anything debate, to the yeah. table. Is that kind of like um, the guys who who are really into conspiracy theories? You know, and if they present it to you, they're going to have all this yes. research and websites yes. and documentaries that they went to in your, you know. Yeah. Even even if your facts are like stronger, they have so many other weapons yeah. and they're ready for that war. They're ready. Yeah, they're, they're entrenched ready and fortified, like you're saying. Exactly so, right. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly it, That's right. a hard war to, to win. Yeah. Because I'm not going to go, like we've talked about before, I'm not going to go and and dig through the interwebs and watch video upon video right. about just this, to fight that war, just to fight this Dude, it's war. It's not even necessarily to prove anything right or wrong. It's just, yeah. you got to just to fight and win that war. Yeah. The passage from the defensive to the offensive is one of the most delicate operations of war. And I actually have a, uh, a note of what I think is the most difficult operation of war. And that is linking up under fire. And again, you know what? Now I'm talking tactically to to people that are listening to the show that are currently serving in the military or in the police. Linking up with other units, other friendly units under fire is is one of the most difficult things to do because there's so much confusion. People are shooting. You're trying to bring friendly units together. There can be bad guys in between you. And obviously, if there's bad guys in between you and the other good guys and you have to shoot at the bad guys, that means you're shooting at good guys, too. Your Mm -hmm. bullets can hit them. So it's a very, very, very challenging thing to do. So be careful when it comes time to link up under fire. And you know what I think of when I think of this? I think of 
when you see companies merge, it's they're, they're, you know, they're, they're moving together and there's just, it's very challenging. There's confusion. There's a, a disorder. There's a, there's a merging of the chain of commands of two different groups. So it's, it's very challenging. And so anybody that's going into some kind of a merger scenario, you've got to recognize out of the gate that this is one of the most hardest military operations and one of the hardest business operations to do. So you've got to be aggressive with it. You've got to plan it. You've got to be clear about it. You've got to do it in a simple way. Don't think that you're just going to merge two companies together and it's <laughs> going to be all good. It's a very challenging event to participate in. It is a violation of correct principles to cause cores to act separately without communication with each other in the face of a concentrated army with easy communications. This is the same theme, this idea that you want to stay together. You want to work together. You want to, and I'll throw this word out there in case people didn't catch it the first time I, I said it, the word mutually support or the words mutually support. You want to mutually support each other. Now, what we find in the business world is you get different elements inside of a company that do not work together. They don't communicate with each other. And it's the same thing as being out on the battlefield and you got your platoon and I got my platoon. And if we're not talking, how are we helping each other? It's we're not. And if we, if, if you try and hit the enemy and the enemy's bigger and stronger than, than you are alone, well, he's going to beat you. Mm -hmm. And then if I try and, you know, later, even if it's an hour later, I try and hit him. Well, guess what? He's bigger and stronger than you, and he's bigger and stronger than me. He's going to beat me. We have to join together and work together. It's mm -hmm. so obvious. I know it's obvious. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You'd think it'd be obvious to people on the battlefield, and yet Napoleon himself felt the need to write that down as a maxim <laughs> because people don't do it. Right. And, and, and Leif and I, in, in our book, we have the, the, the law of combat called cover and move, and that's what it is. It's about mutual support. It's about working together. It's about teamwork, and it's about not having silos in your organization where one person just is going to be on their own or one element's on their own and another element's on their own and another element's on their own. Are you talking about like just structurally where that's how you kind of run the business or are you talking about where they don't communicate because eh, I don't really like that guy? It's both those. Oh, okay. Now, well, structurally, I mean, you have to have things structurally. There will be separate elements right. structurally in the military. I mean, in the military, there's, you know, there's artillery. That's a separate element. There's, you know, logistics. That's a separate element. You've got, then you've got the, the infantry companies right. and there'll be separate infantry companies, but they're right. all separate, but they have to work together. They have to mutually support. They have to communicate. Right. They fail to do that. Well, in a business, you've got the same thing. You've got a sales branch. You've got an operational branch. You've got an administrative branch. You've got a, a marketing branch and, and all those branches, they have to work together too. Right. Yeah. So, and um, on a personal level, let's say, you know, I don't like Jenny from HR. So, you know, <clears throat> I can't stand Jenny from HR. Either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're not going to, we're not going to talk to her. You know, we're just, we don't need her. You know, we're just going to continue without her kind of, kind of attitude. Yes. That's a classic example. If anyone decides that for personal reasons or whatever, they're not going to work with someone else. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And mm -hmm. it does happen 
in it, it happens so often in businesses it's ridiculous right. and, it, and it happens in the military too it happens in seal platoons it happens in inter-services and and that's just a huge obstacle to overcome and like mm-hmm. i said that's why napoleon bonaparte himself put it in his maxims another one one battalion sometimes decides the issue of the day so which battalion is that going to be we don't know which element is going to hit that critical situation this to me is bringing it back to you know being prepared and giving you know making your teams strong all of them and balancing them because one battalion or one element or one team or maybe even one person can decide the issue of the day so balance is very important I just couldn't help just going tactical with Napoleon on some of these. <laughs> I really couldn't. It's just great stuff. I understand fully. It should be adopted as a principle never to allow intervals through which the enemy can penetrate between the different corps forming the, forming the line of battle unless you have laid a snare into which it is your object to draw him. This is... Very simple for people that are in the military to understand, and I just kind of talked about it. If you and I are the good guys, and we have guns, just you and me, and we allowed a bad guy to get in between you and me, and he has a gun, now, what is that? Do you you understand what that does? If I want to shoot the guy and I miss by a quarter of an inch, who does it hit? Right. Potentially me. It hits you. Yeah. It hits you because it's Murphy's Law. Not even potentially. It will hit you. It's Murphy's Law. So you want to always, again, this goes back to, you know, unity of command and having your elements working together and not allowing other elements to penetrate in between your forces. Interesting how he added unless... It's to snare him, like unless that's like the, you're baiting him into a yeah. trap kind of thing. Yeah. That's interesting how he added that specifically. You, like, you, like that's kind of a dope little thing to do. Yeah, it is. A, I don't know if Napoleon would have said it was a dope little thing to do, but right. but it kind of is though. That's the thing. And this is the next one. Same theme. The camps of the same army should always be so placed as to be able to sustain each other. Right? You always have to be able to mutually support. Mm-hmm. Mutually support. As you would say, that is important. A good general, good officers, commissioned and non commissioned, good organization, good instruction. And strict discipline make good troops independently of the cause for which they are fighting. Independently of the cause for which they are fighting. A good general, good officers, commissioned and non-commissioned, good organization, good instruction, and strict discipline make good troops independent of the cause for which they are fighting. So you can actually just have a incredibly strong force that can operate at a high level regardless of the cause that they're fighting for right just because they have those things right 
yeah, like kind of what I, I've told you before, where if you, you know, you were trained in discipline, trained in all these things, all the way down to just, okay, for example, if you, if you were trained in, by whatever means, you're trained to show up on time every single time, mm-hmm. where, you know, never be late yes. to the point where being late could very well be the end of the world for you. Like okay. train that hard and never being late. That's going to kick oh, for a certain situation. Like you're in the military, right? Mm-hmm. So you can never be late in the military. So now when you get out, when you show up for work, when you show up for drinks with your friend, chances are you're never going to be late. Of course. And that goes for, you know, the skills, the discipline and, and everything else you're trained in. Yeah. The first quality, and this is, now we're just going to get after it. The first quality of a soldier is constancy in enduring fatigue and hardship. Courage is only the second. So the first quality of a soldier is constancy in enduring fatigue and hardship. That is the, this is Napoleon Bonaparte saying that the most important thing, the most important quality of a soldier is that they, that they can endure fatigue and hardship. Courage is only second. Poverty, privation, and want are the school of the good soldier. So now, when you look at any of the elite military training schools that those get that people get put through. Well, what is it about? It's about poverty, privation, and want. You know, it's about being hungry, cold, tired, miserable. That's what they do. You know, privation. I looked that word up actually. A state in which things that are essential for human well-being are lacking. And that's what they do. And you know, for me. You know, I always talk about like, you know, I don't sleep a lot. I wake mm-hmm. up early. That's one of those things that w- it was pretty natural to me. Luckily, there's mm-hmm. some biological genetic reason or whatever, but that was very helpful to me, very helpful for me mm-hmm. to not have to sleep a lot Yeah. and being able to suffer through that well was, was beneficial. And, you know, there's a lot of guys that have that, that talent. And people that don't have that talent have a rough time yeah. as, you know, as warriors in, yeah. in a real sense. You should, by all means, encourage the soldiers to continue in the service. This you can easily do by testifying great esteem for old soldiers. They do that very well in the military. You know, the older, more experienced veteran soldiers get a lot of respect. The pay should also be increased in proportion to the years in service. There is a great injustice in having no higher pay to a veteran than to a recruit. So that's that's good. Now, when I read this, this didn't particularly strike me as an important maxim to bring up, but it reminded me of a story that always stuck with me. And so I was over in Ramadi. And I was working with a with a battalion called the First of the Five Hundred Six Band of Brothers, sure. Red Curry, just unbelievably awesome and heroic soldiers. And I went over there for a meeting 
with the commander of the battalion. And I showed up to the meeting early. Of course, I was meeting him in his office. But And this guy was, uh, was just an incredible leader and an incredible soldier and really an incredible man that I could not have any more respect for. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying his name right now because I don't want to interrupt his privacy and his world. You know, I don't know if he wants to have his name said on a podcast, you know, and we talk about him in the book and I don't put his name in there either. And again, this is out of respect for people's privacy and also out of, you know, security reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want to have the insurgents and terrorists of the world knowing that he was this guy. So, but I will tell you this, the guy was just a fantastic leader. And uh, so I went to this meeting with him. This is just a one-on-one meeting. I forget what we were talking about, but I showed up early and he's in there and I can hear him. You know, he's, he's kind of talking to a soldier. I can't hear what he's saying. And there's just a soldier. And what's interesting about this is these, the army, see in the SEAL teams, when you go, when you join a SEAL platoon for two years or whatever, how, however long it's going to be, you stay in that SEAL platoon, you do a workup cycle, and then you go out on deployment. Mm. And the army does a little bit differently. The army, you could be three months into a year long deployment to Iraq and they will just, uh, they'll just leave. They'll, it'll be their time. Their time in the army is up and they'll go home Mm. or, and then some new guy will show up and they'll be in the middle of deployment. And that's how they do it. The SEAL teams doesn't really do that. You know, you kind of stick together for an entire straight six or seven month deployment. Mm. So I show up to this meeting with the battalion commander and the, the soldier that was in before me walks out and, uh, the colonel, I, I sat down. I said, hey, sir, how are you doing? Good to see you. And he's like, hey, good to see you, Frogman. And he said, you know, that, that right there is a soldier's getting out of the army. And I said, oh, it's interesting how you guys do that. And he said, yeah. And he and I said, uh, you know, what do you say to these guys when they're getting out of the army and it's the middle of a deployment? And he looked at me and he said, you know, when I deal with a soldier that's getting out of the army, he said, a lot of people will, will say, you can't leave us now. You know, you got to stick it out with us. You got to stay here. We need you. And he said, when I deal with a soldier that's getting out of the army, I look at him and I shake their hands and I say, thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. And that to me was just, awesome to, to, to have a totally different attitude because the SEAL teams is like that as well. If someone's going to get out of the SEAL teams, they're not going to be on the middle of deployment. But when you get back, they'll say, oh yeah, I'm getting out. Mm-hmm. And everyone says, oh, you're a quitter, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's just a different attitude. And what does that, what does that tell you about your community when you say, hey, you know what, I'm going to move on. I'm going to take care of my family. I got to, you know, I got whatever going on in my life and I'm going to get out of the SEAL teams. And people are like, oh, you're a quitter. Mm. And that's normal. And they do that in every branch. It's not just mm. the SEAL teams. And here was this guy, and his attitude was, he's going to say, thank you for your service. Mm. Appreciate everything you've done. And I wish you the best of luck. That guy is more willing to change his mind because he's like, wow, I'm working for an incredible leader. The Army's awesome. Right. And that, that story always stuck with me mm-hmm. about, about how to treat people. About how to treat people. This is a guy that put his life on the line for 
months on end. Mm-hmm. And all he did was just say, thank you for your service. Yeah. That's a leader right there. Mm-hmm. Next one. It is not by harangues at the moment of engaging soldiers are rendered brave. Veterans hardly listen to them and recruits forget them at the first discharge of a cannon. If speeches and arguments are at any time useful, it is during the course of the campaign by counteracting false reports and causes of discontent, maintaining proper spirit in the camp and furnishing subjects of conversations in bivouacs. These several objects be, may be attained by the printed orders of the day. And, and, and so this is, again, as a leader in a leadership position, this, he's basically saying, look, at the moment of combat, all you're yelling and screaming and trying to motivate people is too late. The veterans, like the, the veterans aren't going to listen to you and the recruits, once the cannon goes off, they're not hearing you either. Mm-hmm. So your main focus needs to be you know, during the, the non-firefight scenarios. That's when you get people with the mindset that's going to drive them through these bad situations. Mm. If you're trying to do this, trying to encourage people during the, during the firefight, you're a little late. <laughs> Theme of the night. Nothing is more important in war than unity in command. When, therefore, you are carrying on hostilities against a single power only, you should have but one army acting on one line and led by one commander. Does that even need explanation? Not really. No, not really. Unity of command. There are certain things in war of which the commander alone comprehends the importance. Nothing but his superior firmness and ability can subdue and surmount all difficulties. This is the burden of command. This is recognizing when you're in a command position, when you're in a leadership position, there are some things that are yours alone and you have to drive from the top. And I I talk all the time about leadership being at every level. And, and how the lowest ranking guy is a leader and the person above him is a leader all the way through the whole chain of command. But this statement, which I agree with, as much as I know that leadership throughout the chain of command is infinitely important, it is important as a leader to understand that there's some things that you and you alone are going to understand and it's your responsibility to ensure that that piece of the battle is handled correctly. Mm. This one's a little bit long. I'm going to read it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) To authorize generals and officers to lay down their arms by virtue of a special capitulation under any other circumstances than when they constitute the garrison of a fortified place would unquestionably be attended with dangerous consequences to open this door to cowards to men wanting in energy or even misguided brave men is to destroy the military spirit of a nation from Napoleon there can be no surrender 
An extraordinary situation requires extraordinary resolution. Hmm. Note taken, underlined in red. An extraordinary situation requires extraordinary resolution. How many things apparently impossible have nevertheless been performed by resolute men who had no alternative but death? Strong words. Very strong words. And we could go throughout military history and find case upon case where I would tell you, yes, absolutely, that commander made a wise decision to surrender. Mm. And, you know, that's there are situations where that happens. But I think the main point of this is that to have that out there, to have that as a thing right, right. is not smart, is not smart. And, you know, going in with MMA fighters and telling them, like, listen, if you get caught in a submission, don't tap. Let it break. If you get put in a choke, go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Just there's no submission. You're not tapping. Now, I've said that to guys, and I've had some guys get out of some crazy submissions that they should have tapped and maybe they got a little bit injured but mm-hmm. they got out mm-hmm. and i've also had guys get caught in like some devastating submissions and been like oh you know what okay i'm gonna tap because mm-hmm. but the fact that that attitude wasn't out there right okay that like like yeah. okay you know what if you get caught you know what right. just tap i mean you're not gonna say to a fighter okay look if you get caught in a bad arm lock you know just tap right. no no if you get caught in a bad arm lock Get out of it. Yeah. In competition. Let it mean, break. Like in an MMA fight. Yeah. I mean, obviously not. Yeah, in yeah, training. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. No, okay, yeah. Okay. In training, sorry, folks. If you're in training, tap early and tap often. Fast. Yeah. Okay. So when you say having that be a thing that's out there, meaning there's almost, not, I don't want to say a shame, but almost like etiquette is to not surrender. That's yes. etiquette. And it's so much of etiquette where it's here. You don't surrender. Here it is. It's written plain English. Don't surrender. Right, right. And it's not even etiquette. There's a better word for it. There's a word. I don't know what it is, but it's Law. not etiquette. It's it's our ethos. Right, right. That's ethos. what it is. It's our ethos is do not surrender. Right. So when someone does surrender, when it's a good move, how you say like every once in a while, there right, is right. It, it's like, man... It, there was literally no other option right, right, that could be right. conceived. Yeah, yeah. But to not have it out there, you know that that commander took it to the nth degree and said, you know what? All of my men are going to die for no reason now if I continue on with this. So right. therefore, we are going to surrender and and hopefully we'll come back to fight another day. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, it's if, you know, if, if I don't know, someone even has this much mental weakness going right. in. He could get, and that could kick in at a whole nother time. Yes. And now he's under this certain kind of mindset that, man, I could look for the easiest way out right here. Yeah. You know, I'm real tired. Or, man, my shoulder got hurt on that last one. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I'll just, you know, I'll, but if he's in that mindset that don't give up, you just can't surrender, he won't even consider that. That won't even enter his mind. That's what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Such conduct, such conduct ought to be prescribed, pronounced infamous, and punishable with death. The generals, officers, and soldiers who in battle have saved their lives by capitulating ought to be decimated. 
He who commands the arms to be surrendered and those who obey him are alike traitors and deserve capital punishment. So they're saying if you give up, you, you should... You give up, you die. <laughs> That's exactly what they're saying. All right. That's exactly what they're saying. Now we're going to get in a little bit of uh, something that we now refer to as extreme ownership. <laughs> A general-in-chief cannot exonerate himself from responsibility for, for his faults by pleading an order of his sovereign or the minister when the individual from whom it proceeds is at a distance from the field of operations and but partially or not at all acquainted with the actual conditions of things. So you, if I tell you to do something and it doesn't go well for you, you're out in the field and I told you, hey, charge this machine gun nest, and you do it and everyone dies, and you come back and say, hey, it wasn't my fault, it was Jocko's fault. Mm. The point is here, no, doesn't work that way. Does not work that way. Hence, it follows that every general in chief who undertakes to execute a plan which he knows to be bad is culpable. So, if I tell you to go attack that machine gun nest and you know it's a bad plan and you execute it anyways, your fault. That's kind of like, I mean, that whole idea is you take responsibility for your direct actions, right? So, it's kind of like if you do the opposite of that, it's like, okay, I, you know, I was speeding. I got caught. Right? Mm -hmm. I got speeding. I got a ticket. Is that my fault? Because, yes, it's my fault, but in a way... If I don't want to exercise this concept, in a way, it's my parents' fault for having me. Or maybe not teaching me the value of following traffic uh, I, I'm not going laws. to have this discussion with you. <laughs> That's just completely ridiculous. It's the same thing, though. You can't blame your parents for your speeding, Echo Charles. That's what I'm, I'm saying. I'm not going to let you do that. That's the point. That's the point I'm no. making. It, it, that's, and the point here is that if you're doing something, this is even more of an extreme point. This is if your parents tell you to speed and you go out and get caught speeding and pulled over. You oh, go, yeah. hey, my parents tell me to speed. Right, even more direct. You, yeah. That's what I'm saying is you knew it was wrong. You knew you shouldn't be doing it. Right. And what Napoleon is saying is it's your fault. You're culpable. Gotcha. Period. Period. Would, <laughs> would you suggest, let's say. Period. You knew it was wrong. Would a better plan of action be expressed that you know that the the mission or whatever is wrong. Yeah, you should be like, hey, I'm not doing this. Oh, in fact, he goes on. He should communicate his reasons, insist on a change of plan, and finally resign his commission rather than become the instrument of the of his army's ruin. Uh, this is yeah. just the this is the most probably the most powerful thing we're going to talk about tonight. I'm going to read it again. A general in chief cannot exonerate himself from responsibility for his faults by pleading an order of his sovereign or the minister. When the individual from whom it proceeds is at a distance from the field of operations and but partially or not at all acquainted with the actual condition of things. So this is, a, this is an order that's coming on from high from somebody that doesn't know. Hence, it follows that every general in chief who undertakes to execute a plan which he knows to be bad is culpable. He should communicate his reasons, insist on a change of plan, and finally resign his commission. So quit his job rather than become an instrument of his army's ruin. 
Every general in chief who in consequence of orders from his superiors gives battle with the certainty of defeat is equally culpable. This is ownership. Mm. This is, Hey, I got told to do something. I don't agree with it. Hey boss, you got to listen to me here. This is not the way we need to execute this. Here's a better plan. Here's another plan. Here's a, here's an alternative because if you give battle with the certainty of defeat, you're culpable. Mm-hmm. regardless of who told you to do what individual responsibility. And this is especially important to have this concept coming from somebody that was as egotistical and expected so much discipline from his troops to, to have Napoleon himself saying this, like if it's a bad order, you shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. This is Napoleon saying this. Right. So that's how important it is to have this, this culture in your organization to make sure that everybody knows regardless of what you get told, you've got to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it's everyone's individual responsibility to take extreme ownership of everything that's happening and not just say, you know what, I'm going to point my, point my finger up the chain of command, blame them when something goes wrong. I, I've talked about this before. You know how many times I blame my bosses for things that went wrong? No. Zero. Never blame my bosses. How could it ever be their fault? I was in charge. And if they told me to do something that was stupid, I would tell them, look, I'm not doing that. Here's why. Let's find a better way. The first qualification of a general in chief is to possess a cool head so that things may appear to him in their true proportions and as they really are. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful statement. Possess a cool head so that things may appear to him in their true proportions and as they really are. He should not suffer himself to be unduly affected by good or bad news. The impressions which are made upon his mind successively or simultaneously in the course of a day should be so classified in his memory that each shall occupy its proper place. For sound reasoning and judgment result from first examining each of these varied impressions by itself and then comparing them all with one another. So you're going to hear all these things, all these different impressions you're going to get. Rumors, gossip, reports. Probably heard this. The first report in war is always wrong. You're going to hear all that stuff and you got to, you got to detach from it. You can't get emotional. You got to categorize them. And then once you hear them all, you can look at them and assess them all in their own light. There are reason there, there, there are some men who from their physical and moral constitution Deck everything in the colors of imagination with whatever knowledge, talents, courage, or other good qualities these may be endowed. Nature has not fitted them for the command of armies and the direction of the great operations of war. So anybody that gets emotional, that that, that hears something and lets it cloud their decisions, that gets too close to problems, they're not cut out to lead in war. Mm. And I 100% agree with that. And they're not cut out to lead in any situation. Mm. Uh, 
to be familiar with the geography and topography of the country, to be skillful in making reconnaissance, to be attentive to the dispatch of orders, to be capable of exhibiting with simplicity the most complicated movements of an army. These are qualifications that should distinguish the officer called to the station of chief of staff. And my favorite of those is to be capable of exhibiting with simplicity the most complicated movements of the army. I talk about all this, this all the time. It's a, one of our laws of combat. It's a chapter in extreme ownership that we wrote about in simplicity. And a lot of times we talk about giving clear, concise orders, simple, clear, and concise orders. So that's, that's another mark of someone that can lead well is someone that can take complex ideas simplify them and communicate them in a simple manner. Is that like, you know, how in jujitsu you'll, you'll like people name moves. Yes. They'll do like, they'll give moves name, but each move will have like, you know, four, five, six, ten parts to that move details that are important to, to make the move. You name it one move, you learn that whole move. So it takes these complex orders or moves and simplifies it. Yes. Especially when you're communicating, you know, yes. do this. You just say yes. the, the and the and there, there are, I mean, there definitely are coaches that can take complex moves and break them down very simply. And that is, that is what makes a good instructor, right? That mm-hmm. is what makes a good instructor is someone that can explain to you exactly what you do with your weight, exactly where you put your forearm, exactly and then, and then explain to you that, you know what, this might be a little bit different from you, for you, because you're a different human, mm-hmm. but here's exactly what I do. And here's the effect that I'm looking for when I do it. Mm-hmm. Very simple. That's yeah. what we're looking for. The first principle of a general in chief is to calculate what he must do to see if he has all the means to surmount the obstacles with which the enemy can oppose him. And when he has made his decision to do everything to overcome them. Again, that's to me is about commitment. Next, war is composed of nothing but accidents. And although holding to general principles, a general should never lose sight of everything to enable him to profit from these accidents. That is the mark of a genius. In war, there is but one favorable moment. The great art is to seize it. It's a business obviously jujitsu, obviously fighting, obviously these, that's just, there's, there's moments, there's opportunity, there's opportunity. And when you, when you have that opportunity, the art is to seize it very simply. Defensive war does not exclude attacking just as offensive war does not exclude defending. Although it's aim may be to force the frontier and invade the enemy's country. I just think it's important to not only think about, hey, you, you should be attacking and defending at the same time and defending and attacking at the same time, but also we got to remember the, the contradiction in the fact that he's a guy that talks about offense, 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 but even he has to balance that with defense. Even Napoleon has to balance things. I'm going to do the the last one. A doubtful 
general who acts without principles and without plan, even though he lead, even though he lead an army numerically superior to that of the enemy, almost always finds himself inferior to the latter on the field of battle. Fumblings, the middle course, lose all in war. And I just like the fact that he's talking about principled leadership. And I would say that principled leadership, not just in a leadership position, but as a person. What are your principles as a person? And if you have principles as a human and you stand by those principles, you're going to be successful. You're going to win. Whereas if you take the middle course and you waver or you don't just don't have principles on which to stand, then you fall apart. Mm. And I think that everybody should look to define what their principles are. Yeah. Actually define them. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I would love to tell you that when I was, you know, 19 years old, I sat down and wrote down. Jocko's principles of life. I didn't do that. I, I wish I would have. And I, and I can tell you that as I grew up in the SEAL teams, there I probably added principles. And, and I added some bad ones and I added some good ones. Mm-hmm. And I think that those, those principles, though, when you get to a point where you know that your principles are solid, and honestly, to me, the best or the, the, the biggest thing I've done to define the principles that I live by is really the book that Leif and I wrote, Extreme Ownership. That's the, that was the culmination of 20 years in the SEAL teams and putting together the principles that, that, that I live by and, and to survive by. So I think it's just very important to think about what your principles are as a person, mm-hmm. what you're trying to achieve and have those principles like a guiding strategy underneath everything that you're doing. Right. And that's one thing that's good about these podcasts is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been lucky enough to capture some of these, you know, like the, the letters that we read last time, these counseling letters, mm-hmm. I'm talking about my personal principles in those. Those were my principles on how to lead. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to come up with those principles and define them and let those principles reflect, you know, who you are as a person and what you want to be. And I wish that I would have been told to do that when I was 13 years old. Yeah. Because I think it is that important as a person. Yeah. And it it seems like, anyway, that defining your principles it, it seems like that's a um that's kind of an ongoing process yes because it's one of those things where you think you have your principles you know but i don't know for example you you could have just heard it on some speech that really resonated with you so you oh dang you think you have pr- these specific principles now but you haven't really defined them you just kind of liked how that sounded and you maybe thought of one two three situations where dang that applies to me and let me tell you what you're talking about right now your number one principle should be free your mind and 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 have humility to never say the principles that i'm standing upon 
are never going to change because I know everything right now. And we've yeah. talked about this before. Yeah. I know, I, I would, if, if I look at myself 10 years ago, I know nothing compared to what I know now. Yeah. If I looked at myself 20 years ago, I know even less. I'm just a lost animal yeah. out in the woods. So you have to, you know, build these principles. And like you said, and I think there's a difference between being a flip-flopper. Like, you know, you hear politicians get, you know, oh, you're a flip-flopper because you said you don't support gun control and now you, and now you, you're, you do support it. Now you don't support it or whatever. Or you do support bringing in refugees or not. So, and people get called a flip-flopper. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually, I think there's some core principles that shouldn't change even for a politician and even for a person, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of peripheral you know, I think there's peripheral principles that do evolve and do change and you do end up with different priorities in your life. Yeah. And I think that's okay. You yeah. know, there was a, a large portion of my life where the SEAL teams was absolutely the most important thing and nothing else was even a close second, mm-hmm. including things like my personal health, including things like my own family, mm-hmm. including things like my future. The, everything was just completely unimportant compared to the SEAL teams. Right. And while that makes for a fired up SEAL, and, and I wouldn't trade that, I wouldn't even want to change that principle. I mean, th- th- that's what I needed at the time to do a good job. Right, right. But, you know, at some point I had to say, okay, I, I need to think about something else. Right. You know, there, I need to evolve as a human. Yeah. And, and, you know, little things like I need to take care of my family, you know, mm-hmm. I need to actually pay attention to them and not just pay attention to my SEAL platoon or my SEAL task unit or the guys I'm working with. So you, so I think it's okay to evolve your principles, mm-hmm. but I think more important is that you need to define your principles and where you are. And that also is a way to check your growth and see what course you're on. Yeah. You know, this is one thing that I talk about. Uh, when I was in the SEAL teams, I used to talk about this. The most important piece of information on the battlefield. What do you think the most important piece of information on the battlefield is, Echo? Echo has no idea. I can come up with an idea, but it'll take a little bit. Yeah. So I used to ask that question to everybody, to senior guys, junior guys, and they'd all kinds of, you know, where, you know, where the bad guys are, what, you know, where the target is. I mean, they, everyone would have different answers mm-hmm. and there's actually only one answer. The, the most important piece of information that you can have on the battlefield is where you are, mm-hmm. is to know where you are on the battlefield. Do you know where you're at? Mm-hmm. If you don't know where you're at, does it really matter if you know where the enemy is? No, because you don't even know where you are. Yeah. If, if you don't know where you're at, can you even navigate correctly? No, because you don't even know where you are. Mm-hmm. If you don't know where you're at, can you get close air support? Can you call for aircraft to come in and drop bombs? No, you don't even know where you are. Mm-hmm. So that piece of datum, when, we, when you apply that to life, how do you know where you are if you're not tracking what your principles are? Right. The answer is you're not. You're not going to you're not going to know where you are and you're not going to see how you evolve. And when I work with businesses, I use the same principles. Businesses will go out and operate off of instinct. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to trust your instinct and you have to understand it, but you also have to track what the facts are. Mm-hmm. You know, I say like where are your metrics? How do you know what you did 
last year this time in profitability? How do you know what you did in sales? How do you know what you did in product development? If you're not tracking it, you don't know where you are on the battlefield. And if you don't know where you are on the battlefield, you're lost. So that your principles kind of just continue to be more and more informed. You know, like you, you talk yes. about when you're 13 or 16, however old, where you think you have these principles because, I don't know, you listen to Henry Rollins and there <laughs> yeah. they are. But as you conduct yourself through life with an open mind and all these, you, you're offered all these different perspectives that start to solidify your principles. So you talk about the difference between a flip-flopper and, the, and someone who's who evolves. just simply open-minded right. and evolves. Yeah, the difference is that someone who continuously evolves will have an open mind at the same time have pretty concrete principles. Yes. So when they're offered something significant, that is simply a difference in perspective that is gonna, that's going to essentially, on a, in a fundamental way, align with their principles. If their principles are fairness and you know, these, these things that are inarguably good mm-hmm. as far as being part of your principles, they're going to evolve when these separate perspectives get presented to them and thus solidifying their principles even more. Yes. And Echo just used the word thus. And I like that. I like that. No, no it's true. And I think that's, uh, I think this is a good, good thing to keep in mind as, you know, people move forward is what are your principles? How are they evolving? How are they improving? Right. Have they gotten better? Right. Those are great questions for every individual to ask. Those are questions I'm asking myself right now mm-hmm. on the Jocko podcast mm-hmm. live. It's happening. So speaking of which, we got some questions. Speaking of questions, Speaking yes. of questions. The first question. In episode five, you mentioned treating people with a blank slate. How do you deal with misjudging a person in the event of you misjudging them? Yeah. So that was, you know, in reference to a person that, that we went through a counseling sheet on and the fact was that I'd heard some bad stuff about him, you know, bad, he had a bad reputation, et cetera. And so I was saying that, Hey, you know, I, I treat everyone like a blank slate. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, I talked about this before is I set low expectations for people. (laughs) I don't have a super high expectations of what they're going to do and how well they're going to deliver. And actually somebody hit me on Twitter today and said something along the lines of, I like the fact that everyone with you starts at zero. Right. And I'm, and he said, I'm the same way. He's saying he was the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a pretty good attitude to have. Like everyone starts at zero, you right. know, and, and that's a better and, way to put it in my opinion. Yeah. Than, than yeah. Low, than low expectations. expectations. Yeah. yeah. Like, you, okay, you have a zero. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I don't mean to sound like a negative person, but I just don't set high expectations. I set them at zero. Right. Like you show me who you are. I'm not going to predict one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that people do crazy things and, and people are crazy in many ways. Mm-hmm. Their ego, their personality, their issues. I mean, people, their emotions, people do crazy things. So I don't, that's another thing that keeps me from giving people all kinds of credit out of the gate. And, and I do weigh what other people say. You know, I, I take it into account, but I definitely 
am careful to use my own judgment and not cloud my vision with what somebody else said about so-and-so. So, you know, how do I deal with misjudging a person? It's kind of what we were just talking about. I don't set permanent judgment on someone and say, Echo's bad and I don't like him and I don't trust him. That's not a permanent thing. You know, I, I'm going to build from zero and I'm going to say, oh, you know what? Actually, hey, he, he did a good job with that. Or, hey, he had my back on that. So I'm not stuck in my ways and I don't, I don't hold grudges against people and say this person's never going to change. That being said, man, it's hard to change the spots of the leopard. You know, people yeah. are who they are and it's very difficult. Yes, sir. Some people can grow and change and evolve and that's great. But a lot of people, they are who they are. And so you have to take that into account as well. Right. Yeah. When you say like trusting someone, when let's say someone burns you in whatever way and then, you know, a week later, whatever, they had your back in a way that was really unexpected compared to mm-hmm. you know that action that they did. So basically what that does is help paint an overall picture of what kind of yeah. person this is yeah. to you. So where it's like, okay, maybe I can trust them in this type of situation yeah. when these benefits and, and, and detriments are, are in play and these other situations I can't. So it's mm-hmm. kind of this. And then as you have more and more experience with people, they paint more of a picture. Yeah. So trust, even saying trust, that's such a broad brush. Tr- right. You know, right. certain incentives are involved. involved. You can't trust a certain person to do or not do certain things, but yeah. offer up different incentives and you know, you can trust them. 100%. Yeah. And so I think the same thing that you're just saying is what I'm saying is I don't, I'm not going to misjudge someone because my judgment is not a permanent, all, all powerful statement of one time. Yeah. I'm constantly looking at people and like you said, learning impressions of their whole, their whole entity, Yeah. what they're all about. Next. So, starting out in jujitsu, how do you find a good gym in your area? Okay. So, this is actually a question, you know, we plucked one out of many of people that have hit us up on on Twitter about where to find a good Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym. Because people, I think people have heard us talking about jiu-jitsu, and they heard me talking about it with Joe Rogan you know, heard me talking about with Tim Ferriss. I mean, it's something that I talk about, something that is definitely a big part of my life. I know it's a big part of your life as well. And so people think, you know, I'd like to check that out. And I think that's awesome. And if you're out there and you're going to ask me if you should start jujitsu and you're going to give me a whole bunch of quantifiers that you're old or you work a lot or you, you've been sick or you've been injured or whatever you're going to tell me. And I can tell you 99.99% of the time, my answer is going to be yes, you should start jujitsu. Except if your sickness is contagious. Except if your sickness is contagious or if you're a bully or you're a sadist. Yeah, if you're an evil sadist, person yeah. that's hungry for power, I'm, I'm going to tell you don't yeah. um, start jujitsu because you're going to use it for bad things. Yeah, and even before that, I think you might get it turned on you. You know how like, because it's really easy to, depends on the school, but for the most part, it's really easy to spot a bully when it comes to the gym, and it it doesn't fare well. It doesn't fare well. It'll maybe fare well for a day, (laughs) or even maybe one five-minute match or something like that, but man, it doesn't. Yeah, jiu-jitsu is a self-regulating yeah, scene. for the most part, yes. A yes. self-regulating scene. Very few people 
can maintain and and most people with bully bullying attitudes don't have the humility to continue in jujitsu for a long time anyways yes yes so that's another way that it self polices so how do you find a good uh jujitsu gym Obviously, you start with Google. You find out some locations. To me, proximity is very important. So you want a place that's, you know, on your way to work, on your way home from work, close to your house. So it's somewhere that you're going to get in there and train because you don't want to sign up for a gym and never go because it's too far, too out of the way. So proximity is definitely a a factor. Then you got to ask yourself, what are you looking for? Because jujitsu gyms vary tremendously in how they're set up, how they're run. And all those things. I mean, there's really super traditional Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms where they you, you bow before you get on the mat. You mm-hmm. bow after you're you bow to the instructor when you're gonna talk to them. You are very they're very strict with uniforms. You know, only a white uniform. You have to have this certain patch on your uniform to represent the school. That's that's one type of. Uh, atmosphere that you could have then you could have a very loose atmosphere where it's like you know you're gonna come in you're gonna train there is no bowing there's there's handshakes and there's respect Mm -hmm. but it's not as overt and not as imposed as it would be in a more traditional brazilian jiu-jitsu school so what are you looking for you know for me i always you know and and if you come to my gym it's a very it's a very relaxed atmosphere in terms of traditionally imposed discipline Mm -hmm. but when you roll there will be discipline imposed. <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty dynamic, though. Like, we have such a big group yeah. of, of people yeah. that to go in there and, and to get a non-competitive role is you can easily do that. Yep, that's true. In that's fact, true. you you'd, it's easy to choose. It's easy to, yep. easy to be like, okay, I know this role with yep. this group. Yeah. And it's gonna, it's gonna be. I'm gonna go heat. over here with this crew today, and they're gonna bring it. Or yeah. you know what? I'm gonna chill with these guys over right. here, and we're gonna work on some technique, and maybe I can ask this guy about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's good. That yeah. is good. Um, you, you know, there's also, hey, are you gonna go to a school that's very focused on sport jujitsu? Right. Which is, hey, we're gonna compete. We're gonna learn the techniques that are very applicable to, to competing in jujitsu. Yeah. Um. Or am I going to do something that's more com- towards self-defense or and or MMA? Mm-hmm. And a classic example I think of that is the uh, is the 50-50 guard where in it's a position in jiu-jitsu, if you don't know jiu-jitsu, where if you're in a no-rules situation, you're very vulnerable to a devastating submission called a heel hook. And so it's – but there's there's certain – competition rules that don't allow for heel hooks in that position so depending on what kind of school you're at one of them you're going to get you're going to be in a a different situation in that in that one position and and you know actually at our school we do we do both but do you want to do mma focus do you want to do gi or no gi and again there's benefits to both those and they're both fun and i like training both um, so, so you kind of, kind of think about what you're looking for yeah. and then, and then bring that into the school and, and then go try some classes, you know, take some classes at a school and see what they're like. What are the other students like, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of atmosphere is it? Uh, do they have like the similar goals? If you want to compete, if that's your goal, then are the other people that you talk to, are they like, yeah, I compete all the time. There's a tournament coming up. Or are they like, yeah, you know, we compete sometimes. Or actually, I don't care about competing. Because right. there's plenty of people that train jiu-jitsu that they don't care about competing. Right. Is there, 
you know, what's the attitude? What's is their egos? Are are people rolling with you trying to kill you? Which which ninety nine percent of the time in a jujitsu school is not going to happen, but it can happen. It can happen. So what? And then and then it's like, what was the instructor like? Is the instructor personal? Is it is the instructor? You know what we were talking about earlier? Is he clear? Is he concise? Is he understand? Can you understand him? Can you understand the way he's explaining moves? Now there's a you got to give a little leeway there. If you jump into a class that's an advanced class, you're not going to understand everything. You know. And people ask me um, how to get started on jiu-jitsu, and I tell them to go immersion training, just like a language. Just get in there and start training, and you're going to get destroyed at first. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to slowly learn, and the next thing you know, that's the fastest way to learn a language is to get immersed in it and do the same thing with jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the instructor having fun? Is the guy having fun or the girl, are they having fun teaching is it a fun thing because you want jujitsu to be fun mm-hmm. and you want the instructor to be having fun because if the instructor is not having fun well then what you know what are they going to be like in six months if they're not having fun today mm-hmm. then what are they going to be like in six months so that's that's another important piece yeah the, when you talk about what um what you're looking for you know in in jujitsu and in my experience there's so many elements of it to look for like if you know when you if you say okay do, am i do i want to learn mma mm-hmm. learning mma or fighting is the sport of fighting compared to like for example the the, the gracie academy torrents their jiu-jitsu self-defense in regards to fighting getting into a fight or if someone attacks you in a fight that's way different than training in mma training in mma is a sport of mma right. you're going to learn a lot of moves that you're not you're probably not going to learn Things that a quote unquote an attacker. I mean, you you'll, yeah. you will, but it's not focused on that. You're not going to learn stuff that an attacker is going to do to you. So even and, that differentiation is just the fighting part alone. Yeah. It's not to mention the competition part, yeah. the gi, the no gi, the you know all these dynamic moves. Like if you go tenth planet, tenth planet compared to like Gracie Academy Torrance are almost like two different sports. Almost, yeah. And they are, but at the same time, you're going to get. You're gonna get jujitsu. That, that's it. And, and, that's and you're exactly gonna get I mean. jujitsu, yeah. and and that's the important thing I is agree. to get yes. jujitsu. And 100%. just like we talked about the evolution of your principles, let your you know your game should evolve as well. And almost everybody that's never done jujitsu before, if you said, well, why do you want to take jujitsu? Ninety percent of them are gonna say, of oh, self defense, right? Mm-hmm. And so because you know people say, I want to learn to defend myself. There's not too many people that are gonna be saying, you know what? I really have become interested in the cerebral aspect of jujitsu, which maybe some people that listen to us talk about it right. or listen to Joe Rogan talk about it. You know, they'll say, "Oh, that guy's talking about this thing as if it's a very cerebral experience." So maybe right. someone, but but most people, yeah, I, w- I want to learn how to defend myself. I want to make sure. I can... So, but you're going to evolve past that because right. after six months of training, you can handle yourself in the street, regardless if you went to Tenth Planet or you yeah. went to the Gracie Academy. You're going to be able to handle yourself in the street. Yeah. And so then it becomes an obsession of how did that move happen? Yeah. And, and so that's what you gotta. Yeah. That's what you got to be ready to evolve. And when you're at that point, if you go to, you know, school A versus if you went to school B, your experience is going to be a lot different. And it's going to depend on what you were looking for in the beginning. But nonetheless, yeah, if if it is obviously if it's a jiu-jitsu school, yeah, that's that that part's not really going to change. Yeah, you're going to learn jiu-jitsu, which is a beautiful thing. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that I got to say is you got to uh, jujitsu as much as I love it. 
jujitsu is not a religion and you know uh, the the black belt instructor at the school does not have contact or direct communications with god right so just I think keep that in mind. It's a person that is trained in a sport for longer than you. Okay. So just keep that in mind. It's not a cult. There, there should be an open atmosphere. In my opinion, you should be looking for a jujitsu school that has an open atmosphere, not a cult controlling atmosphere. Um, you know, that being said, and, and I said this already respect Yes, absolutely. You should respect the people that are there and respect your training partners and respect your instructors for sure. But you shouldn't be worshiping them and they shouldn't be expecting you to worship them. So just be advised because jujitsu, it should be fun. It should be friendly. It should be engaging. The atmosphere should be good and it should be competitive without being cutthroat. You know, you you should want to go without fear of having a death match every single night, mm-hmm. unless that's what you're looking for. And you just said that, Echo. I mean, like, I go in every night looking for a death match against Dean, against you, against Andy, you know, against who, Craig or Greg. I mean, our crew of murderers, I'm, I'm going in for a death match every night. And even when I don't want a death match, I give it to them. Because because that's how I'm getting better, and that's part of my own personal will to say, you know what, regardless, I'm in there to p- put it on the line and, and throw it out there. And if they get the best of me, cool, so be it. I learned, I got better, and I, I definitely got better than I would if I was either A, sitting on the side of the mat, B, rolling with someone that's not as good, or C, staying at home. Right. So, Yeah, that's so interesting how how it really does accommodate who you are like you when you when you go in looking for a death match every night that totally makes sense because of who you are and who I understand you to be but at the same time in the same gym on the same mat yeah yeah you can have there's people chilling and rolling ben who's you know who's yeah. hey, you know he's you know ends up getting his black belt a bunch of knowledge but he's not going for any death match yeah. he's a you know older yeah. guy um, that's what's so in my opinion, good about it. Yeah. So it accommodates who you are so much. Like me, I do both. Like yeah. some days deathmatch, sure, but most days you not do so deathmatch like once every every two weeks. Once every two weeks, we get the deathmatch from Echo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, go out there, enjoy jujitsu, um, but make sure you don't fall into a cult. Next, do you eat fruit? And if so, how often? And if not. Why not? No. So, okay, do I eat fruit? <clears throat> Sometimes I eat fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you were to ask me if you should eat fruit, I would basically say no. I don't recommend it. And again, this is just a, if you talk to Dom D'Agostino, who's a doctor, or, or Mr. Paleo himself, Rob Wolf. If you, if you go and listen to his podcast or Dr. Peter Atia, you know, who I've talked about before, these guys, they know what they're talking about and they will tell you what I'm telling you. And these guys will back it up with science upon science upon science. So fruit, carbohydrates, spike your insulin level, just not good for you. Um, again, am I an extremist? 
No, have some blueberries. Get your blueberries on. Get your blackberries on. That's awesome. But take a bunch of fruit and put it with some apple juice and mix it up in a blender and eat, you know, 400 grams of carbohydrate in one shot. No, don't do that. It's not good for you. Have you ever eaten, and I'm not saying when you're on the program, so to speak, Mm -hmm. have you ever eaten a whole box of donuts? Negative. Have you ever eaten the donut I ate before? a bag of Hershey's Kisses one time. Then <laughs> it did not make did not work out good. So when you say you don't eat fruit, that's more of like when you're on the program. Right? Yeah, and did you you want to know when I'm on the program? <laughs> yeah, bro. When when are you on the now. program? <laughs> but yeah, I I when when you're when you're trying to eat clean, which you should be trying to eat clean 80% of the time as yeah. anyone will tell you. Um you know, keep it clean and and keep it to you know fat and and protein. If you can, do it. Little bit of a subject change. When, if ever, is it a good time to blow up at someone to lose your temper? Well, blow up at someone and lose your temper are two different things, right? Just is I it good, think is it good to I think I think most people would think that they are the same thing mm-hmm. losing your temper and blowing up at someone mm-hmm. and I can tell you that is almost never good to do that and when I say almost never I mean never with the tiniest caveat mm. of there is some possible scenarios where it might need to happen so if you lose your temper you blow up at somebody what are you what are you showing you're showing that you can't control your temper. And if you can't control your temper, then what can you control? Right? That, that it, and I'm not saying you should show no emotions because if you show no emotions and you're a robot and robots can't lead people and people don't follow robots. So there's some, obviously some level of showing emotions is needed, but if you're losing your temper, you're not thinking clearly and if you're not thinking clearly because you've lost your temper, you can't even read their reactions to what you're saying and you're, the fact that you're blowing up is is clouding your own vision. The fact that you're losing your temper is clouding your own vision. And so you got to detach in order to be observant, in order to watch what your actions are. So if you do have to blow up and when, okay, so when, when does this almost never happen? If you, if you were working for me and you did something wrong, mm-hmm. And I said, echo. And it was grievous. It was like pretty grievous. Like it could have got someone hurt. And I said, echo. Hey, you, this was bad. This is what happened. I, I don't know what I did wrong that thought that made you think that would be okay. But whatever I image I gave you mm-hmm. that made you think this was okay, I this is the worst mistake I've ever made. We can never let this happen again. Okay. And you're like, yeah, okay. And then four days later, you do it again. And I'd come at the same approach, maybe a little bit different, like, hey, Echo, I, I, I don't know if there's anything I could do to make this more clear than I did. What can I do to make you understand? So we might go three or four or five iterations, maybe one more iteration, I should say. Three iterations of you not, you failing to do what you're supposed to do and getting someone hurt or almost getting someone hurt. So now I go, okay, he hasn't listened to the indirect approach. He hasn't listened to the direct approach. He hasn't. I've taken ownership of it. He hasn't taken any yet. I need to come at him in a different angle. Okay, I need to lose my temper with him. 
And it's going to be a calculation. And I won't actually lose my temper with right. it. Yeah. But I will raise my voice. I will get loud. I will point. And I will make damn sure that you understand that this infraction that you have committed is severe and grievous and can never happen again. And that's the situation where I would quote unquote blow up at somebody. It is so rare that it's so rare that in my military career off the top of my head, I can remember one and only one incident of this where I actually said, you know what? This was, this was a a bad mistake. I could see where these guys think they might be able to get away with this again in the future and i'm going to make sure that they realize that was it the kind where they it's not like they made the same mistake it was more like they chose to do something they a chose to way. do something a certain way and in my my assessment of it was that they would do it again if i didn't make it perfectly clear that this could never happen again mm. and so i raised my voice i pointed in the face and you know Gave them 20 seconds of, of intensity. And the, the situation never happened again. And they apologized. Mm-hmm. But overall, not a good thing. Not a good Don't thing. lose your temper, people. Don't do yeah. it. Yeah, I would say losing your temper. Not blowing up at someone. Losing your temper. Like for real, losing it. I, I, it's, you're going to be hard. It's going to be hard to think of a situation where that's cool. Yeah. Okay. And I'll tell you, you want to know when I lose my temper? Because I'll tell you, I do lose my temper. It happens once every six months. (laughs) And it is almost always with inanimate objects, (laughs) namely objects that print or copy (laughs) or compute in some way, you know, electronics. Sometimes I, I get, I get angry. Yeah. (laughs) You probably want to keep that in, in private areas, right? You don't want people to see that. Yeah. Like, my wife will hear me once every six <laughs> months, you know, and she'll come in and she'll be like, printer? And I'll go, yeah. <laughs> she says, you're stupid. I go, I know. She goes, it doesn't care if you yell at it. You know, and I, I say, know. yeah, I know. No, in my experience, I found the same thing. Looking, we're looking, okay, here's the next question. Your specific lifting workout, your weekly training schedule, including jujitsu. This is a big question. And this, for those of you that do jujitsu out there in the world, this is like when someone says, "Hey, hey, Jocko, how do I pass your guard?" Because <laughs> I have a good guard, and so you know, someone that is uh, a blue belt will say, "You know, hey, hey, how do I pass your guard?" Mm-hmm. You know, and they and and literally. I have guys at the gym that are brown belts and black belts that pass my guard once every six months, you know? So my guard is good. And, you know, here's a blue belt like, hey, how do I pass your guard? So this this question kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Um, specific lifting workout and weekly training schedule on jiu-jitsu. So this is, a, this is a big ask. And here's the problem that I have with this. I'm an individual. And I have strength and weaknesses. I have whatever little injury thing that I'm working through at a particular time. I have things that I like to do and I have things that I don't like to do. I have, I'm I'm an individual. 
and my workout is for me. And, and I've taken, and I've, you know, sometimes people will, I'll go on a trip and there'll be a guy that's an athlete and he'll say, Oh dude, you know, I want to, I want to go through one of your workouts with you. And I say, okay. And I've done that. And, and I've had guys like almost hospitalized from going through one of my workouts and that's not good. And then I've had other guys, like there's guys out there that will just crush me in a workout, you know? And especially, you know, there's workouts that I have that I could beat most of the world in, you know? There's workouts that I have that I could crush anybody in. And then there's workouts that some, you know, yoga instructor could put me through that would crush me, right? So my point is that you get some people that I, that would die doing one of my workouts and you get some people that would it be my one of my workouts is no impact because they're an incredible right. athlete. And so why would either one of them want to do my workout? It doesn't make any sense that they would want to do that. So what I've been trying to think is I, I get asked all the time, mm-hmm. you know, what's your workout? What's your workout? What's your workout? Mm-hmm. And and so what I've been trying to figure out is how to do this. How do I how do I communicate what I'm doing and what I've, what I've been kind of going through the idea in my head is putting together a, uh, like an ebook. And I actually put this out on Twitter. I was like, Oh yeah, I'll do an ebook. And people like ebook, ebook. Yeah, do it, do it. So it's an idea that's already been floated out there. Unfortunately, there's not been a lot of time to be writing ebooks, but what, what the focus would be, would be, yeah, like the types of exercise that I do. Yes. But, and, and, you know, kind of the numbers of that, I, that I do of them, but more importantly, going to a, from a leadership perspective is what is the intent? What is the commander's intent of my workout? Mm-hmm. What am I trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Because for you and me to accomplish the same thing is going to be a different, a very different workout, mm-hmm. right? If, if I want to, if I want to take myself to a, to, to an anaerobic threshold, for a total of 15 minutes, what I would do to get there is very different from what you would do to get there. It just, it just is. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to destroy my legs with heavy squats, it would be very different between what you would do and what I would do. Mm -hmm. So what's important is, is not the actual exercises that I'm doing. It's the intent. And am I achieving that intent? Mm -hmm. Am I achieving that intent? Mm -hmm. Like I can do, a, a decent amount of pull-ups, right? And and in one of my pull-up workouts, I might do 500 pull-ups or 300 pull-ups. There's a lot of people that can't do 100 pull-ups. So, oh, what, just in the workout, right? Not 300 pull-ups. Yeah, no, I can't do row. 300 pull-ups in a row. No, <laughs> I wish I could. But but my intent is to you know max do do a number of maximum sets of pull-ups mm-hmm. and then do a number of slow you know very good form maximum sets and and the intent is to get stronger at pull-ups by doing you know a high number of maximum sets mm-hmm. and i think that intent to give to people would say, okay, so that way if Echo is not good at pull-ups and you go, okay, well, I'm going to go in and I know what the intent is. I'm trying to get to a point of failure even on one single pull-up. Mm-hmm. And it might take you only 15 minutes to do that and 30 pull-ups, you know, or whatever the case may be. And for someone that's really good, a rock climber, mm-hmm. it might take them, you know, 45 minutes and they might be 600 pull-ups deep before they get there. 
And so that's kind of the idea I'm batting around. I don't know if people are that really interested in that. I think a lot of times people want a formula. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm going to give out a formula because the formula is going to be different for different people at different times in their lives and ages and body weights and, you know, male or female. There's just all so many variables. Yeah. But I think if I can give out what the intent of my workouts are, mm -hmm. then we're in the right place. Yeah, it, but those those different variables and stuff, that, that could very well be the reason that people want your workout. Because there's, there's two things, there's probably more than two, but two big things that kind of come along with wanting your specific workout. And one would be just to kind of immerse myself into what you go through in a workout. And how does that feel? And how do I kind of measure up, you know? Um, and then, so those two things, like, well, what does it feel like to do a Jocko workout? You mm -hmm. know, like, mm -hmm. how, how hard is it? Mm -hmm. You know, he's going to do, you know, 600 pull-ups in a workout limit. You know, like, how does that feel? You know, is that the, the hardest thing I've ever done? Or, you know, is that just, oh, this, you know, these workouts aren't that hard. Jocko's the, a punk. <laughs> right. Well, no, no, that's the second part. Does it, you know, how do I measure up? If he does, you know, 20 sets of squats with whatever weight, how do I measure up? Can I get all those 20 sets or can I get that weight for 20 sets, you know? So those two things. One, they just want to immerse themselves in your in your world as far as workouts go. Mm -hmm. And the second one is is how do I measure up? I know that's kind of what I think when when someone's like, oh, here's, here's our workout, like those CrossFit workouts. Mm -hmm. like some of those, just mentally, I, I do that. Like, okay, this guy's doing... 20 pull-ups in a row mm -hmm. like how many can i do you know i measure it and then at the same time it's like this is you get to understand what these crossfitters do compare you know and then like i said they go back and forth but those two things and i think that 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 is interesting like if you were to yeah. tell me what you did this morning for a workout yeah like i'd be interested on top of the fact that, oh, maybe I want to do that workout for me, for results for myself. Right. And yeah, you're right. It, it may or may, I may, I'll probably have different results. Even if I do that, the same workout as you for, you know, six months, I might have different results. But that part about measuring up and just knowing who you are and kind of what you stand for. And this is the workout that you do. Just understanding that, I think that's significant too. Yeah. I would love to tell you that I'm some, you know, physical specimen, but I'm not. I'm actually not the strongest guy. I'm not the fastest guy. I'm not the most flexible guy. Um, I try hard. And I also am a result of my, my physical aptitude is like a, is like a, is like a, a brownish gray, um, paint because I, I mix up so much stuff in there mm -hmm. that I'm the result of you know, I'm not bright red. Right, right. I'm not bright blue mm -hmm. because those two things, you know, the, the strength has been mixed with endurance, has been mixed with flexibility, has been mixed with all these things have been mixed together. And I don't want to get too much of any of them. Yeah. Because then I'm losing something else. And so, th so I'm kind of this, this, this kind of average in many categories. Mm hmm. And and my numbers in very few of them would impress anybody. You're pretty strong, though. Yeah, and, and 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 you know, like, but I'm not one of those people that's on the mat that you go, man, that guy is just 
freaking strong, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, at least I, I, it's hard for me to judge, but right. I know that, uh, I guess people say, oh, you're strong. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I think that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you're like that guy on the, you know, you ever play video games? No. <laughs> okay, so let's say you play, uh, I don't know, football, video mm-hmm. game, you play football. So when you analyze your players, it'll have all these attributes, speed, hands, acceleration, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, I don't know, zero to ten. So you're the guy who has all like eights yeah. instead of the guy with two tens and then a three. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But like anybody that's listening to this podcast can beat me in a bunch of categories. Yeah. You know, they got tens in some stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't have any tens in, in anything. That's okay. Not everyone can have tens. Oh. Yeah. Um, next, next question. question. Yeah. Um, would you, Talk more about how you view aggression, positives and negatives. Well, like everything in life and in leadership and in your personality, it has to be balanced. Aggression has to be balanced. And you know, one of the one of the things from from the book is, you know, you got to be aggressive, but not overbearing. So yeah, you got to be aggressive to be a leader. You've got to be, because if you're going to make things happen, you've got to be aggressive to make things happen. You you have to make things happen. You know, I always say to people like, oh, they want to make money. I'm like, oh, you you need to make money. You have to take, you have to take that money. It doesn't going to fall into your house, in your lap. It's not going to make itself. You have to take it if that's what your goal is. Mm -hmm. In jujitsu, you're, you're not going to get better just by being, you have to take the, the progression, you have to take it and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the same thing with anything in life. So, so aggression definitely comes into play. But for instance, in a leadership position, if you're completely aggressive all the time, your subordinates will not want to communicate with you. They won't want to debate with you. They won't want to say, Hey boss, I don't agree with what you're saying here. Mm-hmm. Cause they're afraid you're going to go, Hey, you don't know what you're talking about. We're going to go my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. That's what they're going to expect. So you can't be overbearing, you know, on the mat, you can't exhaust yourself with aggression. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things, you know, that I think from hmm, purple to brown belt, which is, you know, your, your six to eight years in the game is where people start to calm down and realize that that aggression needs to be tampered and control and people have to relax um <laughs> and in combat obviously being aggressive and being dis- aggressively decisive is important but if you go too far with that you're running to your death mm. so you have to modulate your aggression uh, you have to modulate your aggression you can't abuse it you got to use it but you can't abuse it and i don't want to discount aggression in any way because, you know, I always say that your default mode should be aggression. Like when you, when you hit the reset button on your brain, you, you should come out of that reset being aggressive mm-hmm. because that, that be, be aggressive, be proactive, make things happen. Mm-hmm. Be on offense, you know, not sitting back and waiting to be attacked or waiting for a situation to occur. No, make that situation occur. Go. Mm-hmm. So that's my view of aggression. And and it just has to be balanced. And there's there are also times where 
you know, if you meet aggression with aggression, it's actually not good. You know, you, you see this in jujitsu, you see this in escalating in when you're either in a confrontation of some kind with somebody aggressively escalating something might be a good choice. and might be a bad choice. You know, there's always the bully that as soon as you, you say, Hey, you know what? I'd love to fight. In fact, fighting is my favorite thing to do. Let's go. A guy that's like, no man, I was, I was just kidding. So aggression will win there. Um, or, you know, if someone's really being aggressive and you just knock them out, well, then that's, that's a better handling of the situation. But there's also times where there's, you know, maybe there's multiple attackers or there's someone that's, you know, you're in the street. It's, it's always better in the street to avoid the confrontation. You know, does that person have a knife? Does that person have a gun? Is, does that person have a communicable disease? Does that person have friends around the corner? Is that person a lawyer who's going to sue you? I mean, there's all these reasons to get into, to, to not get into a fight in the street. So, so aggressively meeting aggression with aggression is probably not that smart. It's probably better to avoid the scenario. Mm-hmm. And, and the more time you spend in, you know, in combat sports, boxing and doing jujitsu, the, the more likely you are to be able to be like, you know what? I don't need to prove anything to this guy. I'm, it's, it means nothing to me. I prove myself on the mat every single day. I got nothing to prove to, to Joe drunk idiot over here. So I think that, again, I think your default mode should be aggressive, but make sure that you maintain enough detachment of the situation that you can see if you're being overly aggressive and it's leading you to a uh, bad scenario. Okay, last question. You talk about mind control. Can you expand your thoughts on that subject? Mind control. (laughs) You know, when people think of the word mind control, they think of controlling other people's minds. And when I think about mind control, I think about controlling your own mind. Because, you know, while... I am obviously a physical person and we spend a lot of this podcast tonight talking about physical culture and I embrace physicality, but we are our minds and I'm not going to be, you know, going uh, into a Sam Harris philosophical rant on what it means and where the you actually is and whether there's a soul or a brain or whatever, your heart or some other conjured up place. This is what I know is that you, your mind, the thing that is listening and comprehending these words right now, that is you. And that thing, that mind, you can control. You you are the machine and you can control the machine. And people ask me, how do I get tougher? Mm. Be tougher. They, they ask me, how can I wake up earlier in the morning? The answer is wake up earlier in the morning. How can I work out consistently every single day? Work out consistently every single day. How can I stop from eating sugar? Stop eating sugar. What about the emotions? 
How can I stop missing that girl or that guy or whoever, whoever broke up with me? How can I stop missing them? Stop missing them. That is mind control. You have that ability. You just have to assert it. You have to decide that you're going to be in control and that you are going to do what you want to do. Weakness doesn't get a vote. Laziness, they don't get a vote. Sadness, no, no vote. Frustration, no vote. Negativity, you don't get a vote. I don't even give my temper a vote. So the next time that you're feeling weak or you're feeling lazy or you're feeling soft or you're feeling emotional, tell them that they don't get a vote. Tell them you are declaring martial law on your mind. You're declaring mind control. And impose what you want on your brain. Impose the discipline and the power and the positivity and the will. And use that mind control to move your life where you want it to be. It's the things I always say. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Don't let your mind control you. Control your mind. And once you control your mind, then you can set it free. And I think we'll close with that for today. Yeah. That's about all I've got. advice right there. And you know, if... You're out there and you want to communicate with us. You want to carry on this conversation. You want to continue down this path. You can do so on Twitter. I'm at Jocko Willink and Echo is at Echo Charles. Mm -hmm. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank you for subscribing to this podcast, for placing reviews on this podcast for spreading the word about this podcast. And most of all, I want to thank you for getting after it. This is Jocko and Echo. And until next time, out.